You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. Good morning. Oh, it's good to be with you this morning. Back farther? There, there we go. Oh, there was an Easter where I was talking. I was right here the whole time, but we were on a 10-foot stage and it was freaking people out in the audience. I was like, no, I'm okay. <laughs> um, ah, there's a, it's a wonderful thing with working in team, uh, working with people right alongside you, the beauty of community and work, uh, being together in all that we do. Um, as an eldership before services, uh, we get together and we pray, we talk about what's going on, and we encourage and we love on and support one another. Um, and at that time, there's, we often talk about the services and what we're going to say, and there's just different things we share. Um, there's actually two things this morning now that Matt has shared that just they struck out at me. It's like, oh, these are really important. Like, we need to, need to integrate this. And the uh, first one, I'm going to actually talk about second, because the f- second one he just said was um, El Shaddai. The God, it's commonly translated as God Almighty. Um, but the Hebrew word means the God who said enough. And that's the God we serve, the God who knows what is enough, just right, everything as it should be, not to add more. It's talking about his, um, his divine might within creation. He knew when to stop. He knows what's perfect, what's beautiful in its time. He knows what is enough. And it really struck me within that because that's something we need to actually take on and understand that you yourself are enough in Christ. Is that God has promised you redemption. He's promised you salvation. One of the main themes that we're going to talk about today is that when we return to the Lord, He casts our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. You are enough in Christ. You serve El Shaddai, the God who says, it's enough. And the second thing Matt shared upon, we were talking about society and where we're at and that we've really become a um, on-demand society. We want it now because there's a lot of things that are here now. We've got, we've got food right now. We've got um, information right now. We've got entertainment right now. We want it right now because right now is really convenient. It really is. It'd be great if we could have everything right now, but some of the best things in the world you can't get right now. Some of the best things in the world we actually need to have endurance and patience and dedication to achieve. If you want a good marriage, it's not going to happen the day after you got married. It's going to take a long, long time children aren't going to be fully grown the day after they're born. They're an investment. (laughs) You are not going to be the most skilled at your profession on day two on the job. It's going to take time. It's going to take dedication. It's going to take perseverance. You're going to have to invest yourself day after day after day after day for the best things in life, the most rewarding things in life. God has made everything beautiful in its time. 
And so these two main ideas I want us to hold on to as we enter into this passage today, because we've been going through Genesis. Uh, We would have normally done Genesis 19, but there's a bunch of children in here, and there are things in that chapter that you can tell your children. Um, (laughs) And we're going to push that out to next week. Today, we're going to elaborate more on Genesis 18 and this statement of last week of who will you be? We're going to do that through one of the parables Jesus spoke of, the parable of the two sons. And to a little background on this parable, Jesus was um, spending time with notorious sinners and tax collectors. Now, it's interesting that they separate those two groups because it is actually not a notorious sin to be a tax collector. But they looked at them just the same because at this point, Israel had been taken over by Rome and tax collectors were Israel's citizens that went to work from Rome to exploit Israel. They were traitors to their brothers. That's the way they were looked at. So they chose money and possessions and wealth and privilege and position over their own people. And these are the people that Jesus is ministering to at this time. But there's also a bunch of scribes and Pharisees around the ones that were the religious, the pious, doing the right things, the respected leaders in their communities. And they're grumbling and they're griping about Jesus spending time with those people. Really what's unsaid there is why is he not spending time with us, the ones who really deserve it? And so then he tells three parables. The first one is the parable of the lost sheep. The second one is the parable of the lost coin. And those are really just to warm you up to the really hard-hitting message he has right at the end, the parable of the lost son. And it begins with a man had two sons. And this message is just as much about the eldest son as it is about the youngest son. It's not just about the prodigal coming home. The actual hardest-hitting part of the message is about the one who stayed. I want us to hold this in mind as we begin this chapter out of Luke 15. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. We have to consider what is really being said here when the son is asking for this. I want all of the stuff and I want it now. What does that really mean? Well, first of all, when do you normally get your inheritance? When your dad's dead, when your mother is dead, when your parents pass away. So the underlying message is, dad, I kind of wish you were dead so I could have all your stuff. But it actually doesn't end there. That's where I had just, I'd looked at it initially, but I took some more time to really consider what all that meant. Because all the stuff is, it's the cattle, it's the sheep, it's the land, it's the, all the flocks, it's everything that they were living off of. The whole family was living off of. All the family members, all the servants, everyone is using what's these possessions to continue surviving. And he's saying, you know, I want all of it for me, and I'm going to turn it all into money, and I'm going to go. So he turned his back on his whole family for the sake of wealth and what it would get him. And how does the father respond? Does he slap him upside the head, say, what are you thinking, you selfish brat? Give him a good shake, tell him to get back to work? No, he doesn't. 
No, he gives him exactly what he asks for. And so in, within this, we have to realize it's not actually telling us to do that. It's giving us an analogy of how God treats us. He gives you what you ask for. If you want your inheritance now while you're on this earth, I'll let you have that. But there's a consequence to that. Out of Proverbs 20, 21, it says, an inheritance gained hastily in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. There's a time and a place for things. There's a way it should go. We are not, we are not living for our inheritance now. The inheritance is what to come. It's eternal glory with God. And he's asked us during this time to be patient, to learn, to grow, to spread his love on this earth. And this is what's to come in its right time. But if we want the ease, we want the glory, we want the comfort, we want the blessing, we want it now, God will allow that but we're living for ourselves at that point. We're saying, I don't really care about the relationship. I don't really care about all the people. I'm just doing this for the stuff that I want. And so we have to remember that. If anyone ever tells you, hey, God sends people to this place or to that place, you tell them, no, no, he doesn't. God allows them to go the way they wanted to go. He's a gracious father and he will allow you to make your choices. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So you have to consider what sort of life will result in this way of living, fun and games, food and fellowship, a good time all the time. He really took the proverb to heart, all work and no play makes Jack a very dull boy. Well, I'm not going to be dull. I'm going to be a whole lot of fun. But there's a less well-known proverb that I'm going to paraphrase for you. It's all play and no work makes Jack broke. <laughs> Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. But everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. He has hastily acquired all of this wealth all at once and is just recklessly handling it because he hasn't learned over time how to handle wealth. Wealth earned quickly is never blessed. When you look at the stats of how lottery winners handle money, so that's the, generally the quickest way to get a bunch of wealth in this country is you win the lottery, whether it's a million dollars or $500 million. 70% of those people, it's all gone within five years. All of it, 100 million versus 500 million. 70% of them will lose it all. 30% of them will declare bankruptcy at the end of that time, meaning they were worse off than they had begun because they acquired something they didn't know how to handle. Normally, over time, as you acquire wealth, you learn to handle it as you acquire it. You learn to responsibly manage it. But no matter how much we think about it now, well, I would do this and I would do that, the stats tell us 
That's not what happens. That everything happens in its time. And we need not to rush into things because the best things are developed over time. And so we have to hope, we have to consider, well, he's lost everything now. He's going he's gonna to consider the error of his ways, right? I'm kind of familiar with how this story goes. I've heard it before. He goes back, right? Not here. Not now. This actually isn't rock bottom because the Bible also tells us what happens during these moments. Proverbs 19.3, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. This can't be my fault. My dad didn't train me up well enough. The people here cheated me. The famine caused everything to be more expensive. I lost all the money because of this. This isn't my fault. I can't go back like this. I can't admit my own wrong in this. This has somehow got to be someone else's fault. And so in his folly, he's going to stay in this for a bit. I'm going to try to make my own way. I can do it. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Some context. He's an Israelite. There were a lot of laws about food and animals. Pigs are highlighted in there. Don't touch, don't handle, don't eat, don't do anything with them. They're unclean creatures. Even touching them would make you unclean and you'd have to go through a purification process. And this is what he's resulted to. I'm going to go out and I have to feed pigs for a living. So now I am ceremonially unclean. And I am in such a bad spot that I want to eat the pig food because no one will help me. This is the point of actually reaching rock bottom where he is because he just had a ton of wealth and was having a lot of fun. Where are all the people that were, must have been there with him enjoying the good times? All the new friends he acquired. I mean, that's what Proverbs 19.4 says, wealth brings many new friends. Where are they? No one is willing to help. We finish the parable, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. Now, there's a lot of parables that actually talk about friends being closer than brothers, but friends being there in times of adversity. So there's a reality we need to face when we look at people around us, and you have to ask, why are they there? Either are they there because you're just the life of the party and you bring all the fun and all the stuff and you, you throw a good shindig? Are they there because of what you have and it's so much fun to go over to your house? Are they there because you always pay for the meal? Because those aren't really friends. They're there because you are their entertainment. And when you no longer have the means to entertain them, they move on. So we have to consider, do the people that are in our lives actually care for you, for you? Or are they just there for what you bring? What stuff do you have on hand? Oh, well, he's got the big screen TV in the pool. I guess we can go over to their house. 
should that matter at all? They're all gone. And he's going to, at this point, finally come to his senses. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? And this is a literal thing, because now he's in a land, not surrounded by friends, not surrounded by family, and he's dying of starvation. And they come, he comes from Israel, where the laws that are in place are designed to make sure everyone is cared for. They are in place to make sure that everyone looks at each other as brothers and sisters. The two things that define the entirety of the laws, love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. If you go back home, you'll be surrounded by people that love you, that care for you, that have your best in mind, that'll make sure you never starve. And they want you there because you are you. He's come to his senses. If I just go back home, I won't die. I won't die in this. I won't die in my loneliness. I won't die surrounded by pigs. Or I can stay in my foolishness because I won't admit my folly. I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And at this point in the parable, what Jesus is talking about actually parallels a passage out of Ezekiel. So the first part of that passage is Ezekiel 18, verse 21. It says, but if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. He just wants to live at this point. He's expecting nothing else. He knows he doesn't deserve anything else, but humbly, I just don't want to die, Father. I have done wrong. Please allow me to serve at the lowest point so that I may live. Out of Psalm 84, it says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Because in the house of the Lord, there's life. There's people that care for you, that love you, that support you. But in the tents of wickedness, it's just what can you provide? And when that's gone, we are too. Proverbs 19, 1, better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. To remain in his foolishness means death. There's nothing noble about it. There's nothing, I'm going to be my own man about it. No, he's going to die surrounded by pigs came to his senses. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. 
Ezekiel 18.22, none of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. And I have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. He has approached his father with humility, knowing I don't deserve any of this, and I just cast myself at your, at your feet, asking for your grace. I just want to live. And the father doesn't go, okay, you can have the lowest place in the house. No, he says, put the best robe on him, which was reserved as a sign of honor for dignity or um, guests that were coming in. He says, put a ring on his finger that symbolized authority to be able to speak on behalf of the father. He says, put shoes on his feet, which symbolizes a free man, someone who has the ability to come and go as they please. They have the ability to afford shoes. So we have to consider if he needs shoes on his feet, he doesn't have shoes on. Coming back to the Father in humility and recognizing the errors of our ways and casting ourselves on his feet. And how does he respond to us? With complete restoration, with honor, with authority, and with freedom. It says, let's celebrate. You were dead, and now you're alive. Let's celebrate. There is no one too lost. There is no one too far gone that God won't accept them if they return in humility and repentance. Every one is enough in Jesus. Now, I do want to give one forewarning. It's not saying be like the youngest son. The youngest son only did one good thing, and that was to recognize the error of his ways. But before that, he caused a lot of strife, a lot of challenge, and a lot of pain, and it would have been better if he just stayed at home from the beginning. That would have been best. So if you're at the point where you've already done all that, the best thing you can do is come back to God. That is the best thing you can do. If you're in that spot, like the youngest son, make the same choice and come back to the Father. But if you're not at that spot, the best choice is to stay at home. Stay with the Father. Don't wander away. That will cause pain. That will cause strife. That will cause difficulties. If you are with God, Stay with God. You're going to go through a lot of pain if you wander away. And this brings us to the firstborn son, because the man had two sons. Now the older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with women, you killed the fattened calf for him. 
self-righteous anger. Ezekiel 18.24 says, But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered, for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. So we have to actually reflect on the second son's response. It's very similar to the response that Abraham had when he was talking to the Lord last week, and it says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? How is this just? We must look at the motivations of the firstborn son. What has happened? The secondborn son squandered all the property. He told his father, I basically wish you were dead. I don't care about how this affects the rest of my family. The relationship with my family is not as important as the stuff. And you would think it would be reasonable for the brother to be upset about this because that he turned his back on his family. But what is he upset about? The stuff. He wasted all the stuff, Dad. And you're wasting more stuff on him, Dad. You haven't given me anything, Dad. Does he care one iota about the fact that his brother was dead and now he's alive? Does he care a bit about the relationship that he's been able to have with his father this whole time and now that the family is restored, they can go through reconciliation? Does he care about his family in any of this? No, it's the same sin the second son committed. It's the same attitude. It's two very different responses, but they have the same exact motivation. Both sons are guilty of it. And the second son is now being entreated by the father to remember what is most important because the younger son realized the error of his ways and he returned. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and he is alive. He was lost and he was found. Out of Luke 15, 7, it says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. And that might seem unfair. I've done all the right things. I didn't wander. Why is there no party for me? Well, consider for a moment. Just put yourself in the moment. If someone in your family passed away and then they were raised from the dead, would you not celebrate? Would that not be a big thing to shout about, to declare? As opposed to going around and saying, my son's alive. People, was there something wrong? No. <laughs> Just wanted to let you know. It's not something we do. We appreciate the time we have here. We realize we've had all these moments. We didn't go through that sorrow. We didn't go through that pain. We've had this beautiful time together here, son. You didn't have to go through any of that. You got to live in peace and security. You got to live with a full belly and a roof over your head surrounded by people that love and care for you. Do you not see what you've had all this time, son? 
Ezekiel 18.30 says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. There are two sons, one in his folly and one in his self-righteous anger, and they're both iniquity. And if they're both not realized, both will perish. Because the eldest son cast himself out of the house and refused to go in. He will perish in his iniquity, in his pride, and his anger, if he doesn't repent of that himself. It's the warning to the Pharisees. It's a warning to the scribes. It's a warning to all of us. We may have at some point been the youngest son and returned, but it doesn't mean you will not be the oldest son at some point. When we look at others and we respond to God, when we see the things in this world that just don't seem fair. Psalm 103 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust." We have to realize that God does not treat us based on what we do. He treats us based on how we position ourselves before Him. Do you come before Him in humility, in repentance? in acknowledging that He is Lord. And if I'm only ever going to be a servant in your house, a doorkeeper, it's better than anything else, God. And I don't understand all of your ways. I don't know all of your ways, Lord. And a lot of it seems unfair to me, but I acknowledge that you are God and I am not. And I will love them as you love them. So we all have to ask ourselves, when we go out into this world, who will you be?